0: Welcome to season two of The Guidepost. Super excited here today. Uh, as you know, um, all our listeners know, we have friends in the community that we align with uh, very closely with our conservation ethos and you know our view of a better sustainable fishery. One of our valued partners and friends are the folks at Bonefish Tarpon Trust. I have Ross Busek here with me today, and he is going to tell us all about BTT's efforts to help permit. Ross, how are you doing today, sir? Doing well, Tony. But thank you very much for the time. It's permit are close to us in the
1: Keys, and it's exciting to have the opportunity to talk about it.
0: Well, the, the listeners can't see, but I see like massive palm trees behind you, and I already don't like you. uh it's like 50 degrees and raining here which is pretty much what it does nine months out of the year so uh i'm just looking at like bright sunshine beaming in through some sliding glass doors and palm trees waving and it makes me sad to know that this is the life i have chosen to live so um ross you know the guides association in btt i think uh i think we hold each other in high regard as kind of the, uh, the idealistic fools who will, you know, fight to the death for the fish that they love. So tell us a little bit, you know, our listeners love bonefish, permit, tarpon, absolutely love the whole flats game. Tell us, give us some background on what was going on with permit and why BTT decided to engage on this specific issue
1: yeah permit is one of the three species of the flats fishery and as, as probably everybody who's listening knows it's it's widely regarded as the hardest one to catch it, it's you know bonefish often associate with like pleasure fishing it's fun tarpon it's kind of angry and then permits just like suffering so with that suffering and the difficulty that comes there's this really really important culture about the pinnacle of the sport and in the keys it is not only probably the most technical place to catch a permit, but uh, our fish are larger than basically every other permit in the in the world. And I think we hold like 32 of the 36 World IGFA world records for the species there. So it's it's a special fishery, not because we just have them, but because of the, of the size of the fish that are here. And it's, it's essentially the birthplace of the fishery that started off with Steve Hoffman and Del Brown figuring out a fly that works. Uh, the fishery really began probably in the mid '90s, and then took off in the early 2000s. And around right after it started taking off, by the mid to late 2000s, guides started noticing a, a progressive decline in the fishery. Uh, the numbers of fish they were seeing on the flats was getting progressively less, and the the number of shots, or the, I mean that the, the the size of the fish they were catching was getting smaller and smaller. Uh, obviously, signs of trouble that most fisheries experience. So with that in mind, how it works in Florida, there's really two fisheries for them. There's the, the, the shallow water flats fishery that we all like. And then there's like an offshore deep water fishery that targets them at their spawning aggregations. Our fishery is the Keys pretty much ex- exclusively with a few pockets here and there. But the aggregation fishery occurs across the state. They, they have very different ethics towards harvest and catch and
0: release. We're, we're in the Keys. So Ross, isn't that... I've heard um I've heard uh kind of locals in Florida, hardcore like flats guys, refer to that offshore fishery as kind of barjacks, you know, because it's not really a permit when you catch it like that. You know what I mean? Kind of like the the definition of permit is kind of to a fly fisherman is like I caught this thing in two foot of water on a clear, flat, sandy bottom not in 150 feet of water on a live crab. I mean, there's a pretty big differentiation between, you know, kind of the street cred on how you catch that fish. Am I am I incorrect in that assumption or am I or am I spot on?
1: Yeah, you're spot on. I, I I would also say though, I mean the difficulties are different where I could cast a fly at a hundred permit and maybe catch one. Um but, if I casted a crab at one permit on an offshore spawning aggregation, I will catch it so the the efficiency, which is a problem with that fishery in particular like when you have such an imbalanced where you can catch one for one versus one of a hundred it kind of creates a scenario but yeah, yeah, it is it, it's a totally different fishery one's technical one's one's very basic, and thinking about how the offshore fishery kind of got started is probably because the flats fishery really drew this mystique about how technical and how hard it was and people are like oh i want to catch a permit but i have no idea what i'm doing so they go off the aggregations and get their bucket list fish i mean there's nothing wrong they, with they
0: try it they try it one or two days on the flats and they're like screw this yeah where's that crab you know yeah. i mean in pliers, I'm the most squish his claws so the sink gets out I'm gonna stick that hook in him and you know this other stuff's too hard right yeah yeah so um
1: but yeah, yeah. So yeah, these two different fisheries it, and uh, for the offshore fishery prior to any regulations went in place about uh, uh, FWC, our state agency estimated that every other, every other one was harvested off these aggregations. So the fishery was unregulated in decline based off what the flats guys were seeing. And there was a high harvest rate. So really, really not a good scenario to sustain this world-class flats fishery. Um. So we did a BTT. We wanted to get a handle on this really quickly. So we immediately partnered with our our guides association down here in the Lower Keys, Lower Keys Guides Association, which is a uh, uh, really great group, uh, really passionate about permit. Their logo is a permit. So the perfect partner to work
0: that's, with. is that is that Steve Friedman and like Bob Branham and those guys or
1: now that's the Florida Keys Fishing Guides Association. Right, 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 They're right. right. Okay. To, uh, this is. At that time, it was probably John O'Hearn. Yeah, uh, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just brought it up because I ran into Steve and Bob at um at the NOAA Rec Summit in yeah. uh, in D.C. just not that long ago, like a month ago. Um, really great guys. Um, And, yeah, just was throwing that out there. But all, 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 you know, guide community in Florida is something pretty special. Yeah, yeah, I wish I was
1: at that meeting. It sounded like it was pretty cool. Yeah. Uh,
0: Well, I mean, as cool as, as cool as things can get for fish nerds, but, um, four years from now, we'll make sure, we'll make sure that you get an invite. Um, I had talked to Aaron about it. Um, and, uh, yeah, he, he, he was unable, he was unable to make it, but, um, but you know, in a very Aaron esque way, he had a, he had a lot of, uh, he had a lot of strong, comments about some of the stuff that was going on so maybe uh maybe the next time they have this bad boy we can get a whole crew from btt up there and uh and shake some trees man
1: yeah yeah trees need to be shook that's for sure for fisheries management but yeah yeah back to permits. so declining fishery uh you know unregulated harvest really efficient fishery on the spawning aggregations as as you know, is like the worst thing we can do. Um, so our, our, our first objective was, all right, let's, before we do anything else, let's see if we can work with our state agency to put in some res- proactive harvest regulations to just restrict harvest a little bit. At, at, at that point in time, I believe it was like a 10 fish bag limit. And there were some slot limit involved, but it was, it was fairly insignificant. So we Wait, with Did you say
0: a 10 fish, fish, bag, fish bag limit for, for permit?
1: permit?
0: Yeah. Yeah. What? Yeah. What? <laughs> okay. Uh, hold on. Hold on. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So this is one of those like low hanging fruit issues. This isn't like, I mean, a 10. F- okay. Yeah. Keep going, Ross. I'm sorry. I just, that was just kind of like, wow.
1: Yeah. It's, it's crazy to think like 10, 15 years ago when we were doing all this, that was, that was the norm like the people uh in the gulf would just go wreck permit i'm guilty of it too when i was a kid we'd go out there and we'd kill a couple and we never get our 10 but and there was a pretty open commercial fishery form as well that was ongoing so at this time around 2008 2009 late 2000s btt got involved with the lower keys guides association and we worked with fwc uh, through a series of workshops, just to put something in place to stop it. the obvious, like you said, low hanging fruit and the and the bleeding of the fishery. And after a series of public workshops, we we advocated for a catch and release only fishery. We recognized the money, as we just talked about, you know, is in the catch and release. It's in the sport. It's not in the harvest. Um, and a- after our series of workshops, we came to FWC decided to develop a regulation that could balance harvest tendencies with protecting the catch-and-release-only fishery. So they developed a special permit zone in Florida, which put a closed harvest season on the permit, restricted the bag limits down to one or two fish, and uh, altered the slot limit to make it a little bit more favorable to release. So this was a great win for us. At least within the Keys, we now have something in place we have a zone which is great you know some boundary that designates the the value of the flats fishery versus the more harvest oriented fishery up north and we have some regulations in place but again this was done purely as a proactive management action and we're so we're lucky that our state was willing to do this because that's that's kind of a, a big ask
0: oh no i ross i've never in my life been part of a proactive, and i've been doing this for like 25 years I've never once been part of a proactive fisheries management. It's reactive and it's usually like panic. Yeah. You know, there's nothing we do here that's proactive. And I know Florida is not perfect in their fisheries management, but man, let me tell you something, bud. Some of the stuff that goes on up here, it's just, it, it defies all. It defies all logic. So I think it's, you know, kudos to Florida even if that's the only proactive thing they've ever done, kudos to them for at least doing it that time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Our state, our state does some good things. And uh, for, for fisheries management, they're doing, yeah, it's uh it's good to hear, you know, we're, we're always stuck in our own bubbles and we see the problems, but, but yeah, so we got this regulation in place and more or less the state's like, don't ever ask for anything without good science again. Like this is, This is a one time thing supported by stakeholders. Anything else you ask, you better have data. So at that point in time, we had the new regulations put in place, but we didn't know whether or not this boundary that was drawn more or less around the keys was offering protection to the permit. Are the permit migrating out of this boundary to these Northern waters where aggregation fisheries and harvest tendencies are high? Are they staying within the zone and what does that mean? So recognizing now we had to check, check these regulations out, we initiated a cooperative, large-scale dart tagging program, mark Recapture program. And the idea was to determine a lot of the basic stuff, permit growth rates and all that, but most importantly, to evaluate, are the permit on the flats migrating across this boundary where harvest regulations are still unregulated, thus kind of negating this new boundary that was put in place? So we ran the study for about 10 years. We had about a couple hundred or about 150 anglers participate. And we were captured the about 40 fish out of the thousands that were tagged. There's a low, there was a low recapture rate that is all a whole bunch of uh reasons for that. And what we found in that study was that the fish that were tagged in the keys were mm-hmm. almost certainly going to be recaptured in the keys. And the fish that were tagged outside of the special permit zone in the Keys, were almost certainly gonna be recaptured after there. There was one or two that migrated across the boundary, but with fish, there's always one renegade that's gonna do things, or a small percentage of the population. So it's unrealistic at some levels to ask management to change something based off 2% of what the fish do. So at the end of that study, we felt pretty confident that the, the regulations that were put in place, at least on the harvest side, doing what they were intended to do and that's to reduce harvest on the the catch and release fishery in the keys so however as this is all going now we're in about 2015-2016 the the fishery is still in decline the fish are getting smaller and the number of fish people are seeing are decreasing uh there's some quotes from some famous fishing guides that would used to have 30 shots a day on average now on a great day they're they're down to ten, and they have two or three ten-day, ten fish shots a year. So clearly, a problem still exists, and that that needs to be addressed. And as we discussed earlier, there was the, this this tendency for people to value permit as this bucket list fish, where it's something exotic, it's something cool. I want, I, you know, I wanna, I'm coming down from Ohio, I got to catch one. They they don't have the time or the patience to put in the effort for the flats or the skills. So they they go out to these aggregations uh where fishing is still prohibited, but catch and release only, go catch a bunch and check it off their list. However, as we were getting reports from this, the I should back up a little bit. The the closed harvest season in the Keys at that time was May to July. Um that was based off data that came from the early 1990s so we had this catch and release component but we also had this this harvest closed harvest season that may have allowed harvest on the back end and the front end of it and we were getting reports from fishing guides saying that over the last 30 years that these permit were spawning earlier and earlier every year and now the peak spawn which used to be may june is now april may so even though this this closed harvest season was put in place The fish are spawning earlier um, and they they suspected there was a lot of harvest still occurring even within the zone outside the regulations. So we did a a tracking study to evaluate when permit were spawning and where they were spawning and what threats the catch and release fishery may impose on on those fish out there when they're trying to spawn. So we ran the study out. We tagged about 150 permit throughout the Keys track their movements for about five years and right and right off the bat the first thing we, Ross, were we all was,
0: i'm you're you're on a roll dude and I don't, nobody yeah. wants to hear my voice but i'm just yeah. wanted to ask a question what kind of tags were y'all using
1: yeah i appreciate that uh we were using their acoustic transmitters okay. um and what they how they work they're pretty oh, main. Yeah, yeah
0: so i work i work with a phd so if you have to deal with them maybe maybe we can have a beer one time and and tra- trade war stories about having to work with a phd it's probably <laughs> one of the most awful experiences in my life it's like you know talk about the definition it is for 4 days before we do anything i'm just kidding willie i love you um but uh but no we just got we just got a little bit of funding to do an acoustic, we teamed up with New England Aquarium they own the array up in uh Martha's Vineyard mm-hmm. and we're going to announce this shortly but you know Um, we just got a, uh, we just got a little bit of, uh, cashola to do a two-year study on false albacore. Oh, believe it. There's no science on them whatsoever. None, you know, it's just this little scombered nobody cares about. And, um, and if you look at like, you know, our, our favorite social media guy, Cody, uh, our, our secret weapon up to our guys in Martha's vineyard. It's the one fish that connects all the light tackle guides. You know, y'all have all these like super, super sexy, cool fish like bonefish, permit, tarpon. We're trying to save fricking false albacore because we don't have nothing left. But like, there, there's like a jihadist following for. I mean, to catch an to catch an alby from the beach is like a big deal in the northeast. I mean, it, think think about like you know how difficult that is, like to to run down a beach to try to catch up with an albie unload a a double haul and get the little bastard to eat um and then fight it from a beach with probably a hundred other idiots throwing at the rest of the school it's a challenge i mean it's 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 like a carnival it's pretty funny to watch and um the numbers seem to be declining and every time we ask a question they're like yeah there's no science on them so we were like well hopefully we can fix that and we're like i said we're teaming up with new england aquarium couple other sponsors and uh and hopefully we'll be able to follow these these albies up and down the close coast and maybe learn a, a, at least something about them um so anyway that was that was the connection i wanted to know if you know if y'all were using like some type of accelerometer tag or a pinger tag the acoustic tag like you're using but thank you for answering that question
1: yeah uh, tony you brought up a good point too i mean we have all these unregulated fisheries i mean the albies are just. Ten years behind, or ten years, twenty years behind what we were dealing with permit, this niche thing that had no value and no science. And I was talking with Cody earlier about this. Is Jack Crevels? That's another
0: fish that, like, oh my well, god! I, listen, our we have a we have a member, great guy, Florida guide. He's German though. His name's Michael Maury, and he's a guide up around where Cody is in Stewart. And he used to guide in like. You know, oh my gosh, like all over the place. He guided for Atlantic salmon in Iceland. He's he's guided in Europe for trout. He's guided in the Pacific for GTS. So he has this client base from Europe that follows him wherever he guides. They really enjoy fishing with Michael. Michael's a great guide. So he just he 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 got married to a wonderful wonderful lady. They settled down in Florida. And, you know, probably, I don't know, I think I say probably been there like five, ten years, something like that. They've been there for a while. And Michael found Jack Creval, And he's got these people flying from Europe. And they call Stuart, Florida, Valhalla. Because they were, they were flying to the end of the earth, spending $10,000 a week to get three shots at a Jeep, right? And, and then you're in a coral head. You're probably never going to land the damn thing. And then they go to Stewart and they're throwing these poppers and they got 15, 30 pound jacks chasing each other. They're getting 20 shots at jacks a day. And the jack fights just as hard as a jeep. They're both jacks. And these guys are like, I don't really care what they look like. (laughs) The eats are awesome. And they pull like a horse. Like, I don't care. So he's, they call Stewart Valhalla and he's got this whole client base. That has followed him around the world, and their favorite thing in the world is jack creval and they and Florida allows these people to cast net them and sell them for pennies on the dot. I mean, I don't know, man. I think I'd eat a lot of stuff before I ate a jack creval uh, I, I think the list is pretty long. They may be on the short end of like what I'm gonna eat, and it's just you know it's one of these things where like like you said, it's the permit. It's not a very well permit, maybe not so much, but like it's not a very well respected fish but a lot of people rely on it for catching yeah. release a lot yeah and they're fun as hell and like why would you destroy why would you mess up a fishery that has really no consumptive value and and you make the state makes a ton of money off of it and all you have to do is not mess it up and they still mess it up it's amazing to me it blows my mind like i don't know nobody wants to eat an albie what are you killing them for bait for Makes no sense. Um. Anyway, please continue. But so that's that's our like that's our mantra right now. Like these fish that are not well respected and just not treated right, but make up a huge portion of my members' economy. You know, and Jack Kerval would be another one, but Albi Albies are going to be the poster child. But please continue.
1: No, I, I love it. And again, as we as we talk about the how many issues are the same just with a different with a different looking critter, you know uh but with jacks it's the same thing i mean i'll a couple of my guide buddies i'll ask them what do you think about jacks and they'll say oh it was a trip saver you know you bailed me out of a bad day i but i caught 2 10 pounders and i killed them for shark bait it's like mm, come on man you know um but uh anyways another, another fish you know following the same path as permit but a little yeah a little different uh yeah back to permit though so, again, so like mid-2015, 2016, we're, we're starting this tracking study. And uh, the first thing our scientists, including myself, learned is if you're a nerdy scientist. Catching a permit is pretty damn tough on the flats. So our, 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 our the, the lead scientist on this project, I think he spent a month and caught one going out every single day. So the project didn't start very optimistically, but he, he, he figured it out quickly and he got some guide help. But we started putting these tags out, and then after the first year of the study, we immediately saw what the guides were saying, that the, flat, the permit are leaving the flats now in March and April, spawning in April and May, and they're getting whacked on, the, uh, on their spawning aggregations from harvest. So, And the data totally confirmed that. They showed that they left the flats and went out there in April, which uh, was, turns out now is probably the peak month of spawning, and uh, where they were subjected to harvest. So in 2018, we presented these data to FWC, who was a partner on this project, and we showed them that they're spawning and we asked them to adjust the spawning season to include the month of April for closed harvest. And like, yeah, this is great, data, awesome, look at that. We're gonna protect the species a little bit. So with the mark recapture study that really demonstrated, along with the tracking work later, that the fish, that if you you tag a fish in the Keys, it's gonna stay in the Keys. And that uh, now, now that that regulation didn't need any tuning, the harvest restricted closure for the spawn, we tuned that a little bit, so now at least the at least harvest seems to be buttoned up for the species five years six, five to seven years after we kind of started on all this. However, what our scientists learned, what we learned is that, and what the guides were telling us was that this catch and release fishery still exists, even though The harvest tendency, the harvest is taken out of the equation at the aggregations. And what's happening at these aggregations are there are sharks and the sharks are just, you're eating them relentlessly. You hook 10, we got reports that you lose 10, uh, you know, while all over the board that, but the, from the speculations that we got, it sounded like shark depredation was bad. Bad enough to actually threaten the sustainability of the population. So our next question was, like, where exactly are they spawning? Are they spawning at a specific location? Are they spawning everywhere? What's the breakdown of where permit are spawning? And not only just where permit are spawning, but where are, like, the flats permits spawning? What's the deal with the flats permit? Are they the same as the ones that are essentially jacks offshore? What's the deal? So we did two different types of studies to evaluate that. One was a uh, stable isotope biogeochemical biogemo- tracer study, which more or less just takes a piece of fin clip.
0: And that sounds me- expensive. Actually, it's you don't a even lot- have to say it again, man. But just that, that word, because what they're charging us for this acoustic tagging, I'm like, Jesus Christ, I should have gone into that, right? Instead oh, of fish bro. policy. Holy <laughs> shit. Like, I mean, I saw the bill for it, and I'm like, oh my God, like, I... <laughs> So what you just said, I have like, I have like buyer's remorse from those tags. What what you just said, I'm like, oh my God, that's like, that's like the most expensive sounding thing I ever heard in my life. But I'm just, I'm just fun and just keep going though, man. That was funny as hell.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's uh, a, it's a fancy analysis, but what it does, it's really cool. So it it basically just analyzes all the little molecules in the fin clips and it can tell you like what kind of, where, where is this fish living? What kind of habitats does it normally reside on? So when you tag an animal, you know, you only get the information after you tag it. But with the fin clips, you get information of it, the history of where it's been, uh, you know, prior to tagging up to six months in some cases. So we, we have like, we want to see like, all right, is every fish in the Keys? Are they always in the flats? Are they some just live on the wrecks and stuff? And uh, what, what does that look like? What's the breakdown of the permit in the Keys? And what the isotope study identified was basically if, if you're a permit living on the flats, there's a chance it's like, that's where, that's your jam. That's where you live. That's, you know, you're not going back and forth between these wrecks offshore to just do your own thing. You're living on the flats and then you go out somewhere to spawn. So we did that and that's really cool. So now that eliminates like a big portion of unsustainable stuff that's going on for us. Cause there's, there's wrecks in the Keys that are, uh, that are not attracting flats permit that um, that you know people can go fish, do the catch and release thing, catch the bucket list thing, uh, feed a couple to sharks. Not great, but you know not taken away from the industry of the flats fishery. So that is really cool. So now now we got to figure out where these flats permit are spawning. We know that they're going to somewhere. Where is it? So we did the tracking study to see where, where where fact are they spawning. And after about five or six years, we found there's a couple places that they spawn, some lesser spawning aggregations. But in the Lower Keys in particular, there's this one spot called Western Dry Rocks. It's about 12 miles south of Key West, the southwest of Key West. It's a little rock pinnacle, maybe a mile by a mile. It's tiny. And it, it acts as like a multi-species spawning aggregation site the snapper spawn there, the grouper spawn there, like all sort of everything that wants to everything that does spawn, like spawns there. So our our data showed that the permit, about 70% of the ones that we tagged on the flats, they migrated this spot to spawn during the spawning season. So substantially more than all these other places, big point of vulnerability. And the reason why everything is like spawning there is because there's this really cool, countercurrent that happens right off that rock called the Portillis gyre, and what it does if you spawn there, your larvae gets entrenched in this gyre and kind of gets spun around and deposited back in the keys so and if you do that vir- virtually everywhere else in the keys unless you're really trying to find these things like you're just going to get you, they're going to get shot up to your zone up up in the up in the Gulf stream and all that so and if you're like a fish that's like trying to reproduce like the gimmick is that if you if you sp- you want to spawn into places that deposits your larvae back where you grow up because it'll work for you and you get your larvae there it's going to probably work for your kids so they have this kind of notion to repeat what worked for them in terms of the life history so anyways they uh we, we documented that they're spawning there 70 percent of them so, like, all right, this is, this is a, a point of failure for the fishery. This is like a single location um, in, that a lot of people know about for sure. A historically big fishing spot because it's this multi species spawning aggregation, fishing pressure year round. Uh, what does what the catch and release fishery look like out there? And how many of these permit that are flats permit almost exclusively? Uh, what, what is the percentage of them that are being eaten by sharks prior to being landed? So we followed all that up with a uh, catch and release study to evaluate. Actually, two different catch and release studies to evaluate how many permit are getting eaten by sharks. One was kind of a pilot size, uh, survey to look at the flats versus western dry rocks versus Gulf wrecks that we know don't have flats fish, but have permit and a few other places. And from that study, it looked like the flats, you lose one of 50 to sharks, maybe. Um, on the Gulf wrecks, uh, which are north of the Keys, it's closer to 80% you lose to sharks. But since those aren't really flats permit, it's not great, but it's not the cause for the decline in the fishery that we're observing. And then if you go to Western Dry Rocks, it's about 35%. So two of five that you hook getting, get eaten by sharks. But again as we said before the, the the catch rates are so high it's you know a crab per fish you see the aggregation you throw a crab in there it's you're going to get a you're going to hook a fish like that's that's how it works and you do that until your, your arms get tired so given that that it has this really high efficiency this high catch rates and now this high tax from the sharks this is like an unsustainable thing that we can't tune the special permit zone any further to reduce. We can't reduce harvest any more than it is because it's already closed during the season. So unfortunately, the only thing that was really left is to put it to figure out a, a, a closure at that area to limit fishing pressure to reduce this reduce the stress on these spawning fish. So after thinking about it sometime, we were we were talking with the Lower Keys Guys Association, who were super in support of this. They, they were they're going to work with us in developing an advocacy strategy to um, to kind of raise the profile of this issue uh, to make it you know make sure that people know what it is it's not just some Yahoo you know scientist asking for a closure it's to protect land it's to protect a very small area that's very, very important to the overall Florida Keys fishery. Um I, I jumped over a, a one management thing, if you want to hear it. Um but all right, all right. So yeah, as we as we kind of figured out through this process, is the Western Dry Rocks area is managed by uh two different uh agencies that don't really agree on everything. You have FWC who uh who, who wants to protect access. Uh, until that proposes a a scientifically proven unsustainable threat to the fishery. And then you have NOAA who manages a sanctuary that this is in that really want values management based off closed areas. So um, yeah, these kind of like where NOAA wanted to close a lot bigger area, FWC probably didn't want a closure. So NOAA, as they were getting data on this, decided to, Propose a uh, year-round uh, no-fishing closure there, uh, along with several other closures that just did not land at all. Like the stakeholders freaked out. Like, as as you know, uh, how that work sometimes? And anyways, after after all that happened, FWC basically said, "Okay, everyone, we're putting the brakes on all this. This is not happening. Uh, no action is going to be taken until we you know, wrap our heads around what's going on." So at this point we're like, all right, this place is never going to get protected. We need to, we need to do something else. So we decided to run an advocacy campaign based on the science that we did and the science that others did at this place to uh, again raise the profile of the issue, demonstrate the importance of this place, but also the controversy that associates with this closure. I mean, a lot of people make a lot of people make their money fishing out there. It's a it's a close boat ride to Key West. There's fish there all year round because everything. There's always something spawning out there, um, so we wanted to demonstrate that on a public stage. And so what we did is we we worked with a marketing firm to develop a campaign that you know shows the science, shows the controversy, and and kind of shows the value of protecting this area. So the the marketing firm came up with this slogan called "Save the Horny Fish," and developed a bunch of slides a, around it. To kind of bring out, you know, like inspire arguing on social media and inspire like people viewing it, and um, it did just that. You know, you had we had some we had some, we had a photo of a, a girl crying with a shark bit permit. You know, a four year old that that you know immediately fired up the people wanted to keep it open because they said we're using a kid to uh, you know do something, and immediately you know, there was pushback. And then uh, we had other things, like uh, if you swam 50 miles to get laid, you would want to be left alone. Anyway, so like all this stuff. And we have people comment, you know, really high-profile people with fishing shows and stuff. were like, oh, you know, the science is wrong. This is all fake news. Um, this is totally just, you know, there's the blah, 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 you name it, you know. And uh, then other people are like, no, I fished out there for 40 years and like, it's bad, man. Thirty-five you percent know, of fish lost to sharks—that's probably like way low. I'm I'm shocked that they got such low numbers. So we had these kind of debates that were going on on social media, and then on top of all that, the point of the campaign was to develop a petition and uh, have people write FWC and, the, and NOAA to advocate for a, a seasonal closure out there, just to protect the, the couple months. Permitter spawning and mutton snapper are spawning, which is the, the other fishery species that the state really cared about. Um, so, four month closure, not so bad. One square mile area, not so bad. And um, we wanted people to write our state agencies about this and let them know and let the feds know that this is like this is stakeholders approve of this. You know, the opposition you're hearing is minor. It's a small minority. And at the end of the campaign. We were able, we were hoped to get hundred people to take the time and write our state and federal agencies. And at the end of it, we got over about 500 people to write our state and federal agencies. And so after this, after the science, uh, the hard work on the science, hard work on the advocacy, FWC decided
0: to make a decision. <clears throat> we just went through a public comment period, yeah. Ross and unfortunately i didn't have a marketing firm to do something funny like if you swam 50 miles you'd want to get laid in peace too which is friggin' brilliant like kudos to them that's some funny shit um we had to go off a 150 page document of fisheries horse shit Mm -hmm. um four different four different topics 18 to 22 different options depending on like what you picked and they gave it to the public and told them to comment And we were like, mother, you know, we're never, nobody's going to say anything. Like, we're never going to get anyone to say anything. And we got, we generated half the comments that came in for stripers, Um, you know, almost right around 600. Uh, And they don't count form letters. It's only individual emails that are really important. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we had to go through like a year long campaign of educating people on this stuff to where we could get them to the point where they could write you know, an email. Um, but it was, I mean, you know, that, that, that is such a heavy lift for the listeners, you know, that don't understand that, you know, when you start an advocacy campaign, you're not asking people to check a, ne- a yes or no box. You wouldn't have to, you would it wouldn't take professionals to tell you how to get that done. I mean, that's just, you know, um, and you're always going to have the naysayers and there, it's always going to, it's always going to devolve into personal attacks and, and, you know, just dumb shit that people say, but you, you know, what it comes down to is that, and I think one of the, one of the things that I really, I really enjoy about Bonefish and Trust um, and, and, you know, in certain ways uh, I would say that, I don't say we're modeling the guides association, but we're learning lessons that maybe you guys learned five, 10 years ago, and we're looking at those lessons, and we don't, hopefully, you know, we can, we can learn from what y'all had to do, you know, as kind of like an up and coming association. And I think one of those things is, you know, when somebody looks at you and says, we don't have the science, y'all are like, okay, we'll do the science. How about that? And then we'll give it to you. And then you got it and then what are you going to do with it and for the listeners when you take that course you don't know what the science is going to say it it may tell you something that you didn't think was accurate but but you know it's it's almost like a you know p- pick your own poison kind of thing like when you start this you don't you may have an idea but we don't know a lot about fish generally and and you can get some pretty significant surprises. And I think that speaks a lot to the honesty of BTT, the intellectual honesty where it's like, you know, whatever, more science is better science. And if you don't have it, we're going to, we'll pull our boots on, put our, put our big boy pants and we'll get it for you, but do something good with it. Right. Don't just don't keep finding excuses to not do anything and I don't know, man, that's just a little kudos from us to you uh, and something that we're trying to do. You know, we talked about Albies for a second, but that's exactly it. You know, we're like, how could you treat this fish this way? Oh, there's no science on it. And I'm like, hold my beer because there's fixing to be science on it. And then you're going to have to do something, right? And then if that's if that's the path that we have to go down, you know, so be it. So, um, So please, you know, tell us more about our friend, The Permit.
1: No, Tony, you brought up a great point. Uh, science is just numbers, you know. You don't don't know what it's going to be, and I was constantly proven wrong by my thoughts on permit through this entire process. Like I thought for sure they're migrating back and forth across the boundary, you know. I, I thought you know, that I thought they were spawning everywhere. Like I, w- I was proven wrong through this entire project, and which is great. That's the value of of science, you know. Um, And then, and then it's again, like you said, you know, we, we had no expectation of what we were going to find and we just let the science lead the way. And then we just figured out what to do with the data and what the state wanted to do with the data at the end of it. But, um, I I really appreciate what you said. And we pride ourselves in the science that we do and the approach that we take. And again, however we can help you guys is great, but, um, yeah so at the end of all this eventually the the state uh f w c voted and decided that a seasonal no fish closure was a a sustainable and the best thing for our fisheries based off our science and some of the science that our states had done, plus that they recognized that stakeholders were in support of this that we shouldn't be killing spawning fish that's um i mean that's it's unfortunate that's still A debatable thing for marine fisheries management but we got there and 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 now it's protected now 2020 go
0: ahead no 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 i'm just i'm 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 listening i was fixing to say something about stripers because my head's about to explode but i'm gonna because it's just it's so polar opposite of what you just said but i i want you to tell me you know tell the listeners where permit are today you know, after what I mean, a decade it sounds like of y'all working on this. So tell, you know, tell us what the situation is today and where it's gotten. And then I'm gonna make you hee-haw all the way home when I tell you what we're dealing with with Stripe Bash because it's like if you if you could go to fisheries management bizarro world and everything's the opposite, like you walk on the ceiling and shit, like the wonder whatever that that cartoon was and i watched as a kid just when color tv came out like uh, that's what it's like it's bizarro world man like it, anyway let it, i don't want to i want to mess up with the listeners are all on the edge of their seat we know that we know y'all closed a real small area just to let the permit spawn so they weren't getting eaten by sharks because let's face it if if you got an aggregation of fish this isn't the shark's fault right sharks just trying to make a living and and if you got an area like that that draws in spawning aggregations i mean that's an easy meal for a shark and sharks aren't stupid so i mean kind of hard to blame the sharks right it's kind of the fishermen that need to adjust their behavior sharks just being sharks so so what where 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 did this lead and where permit at today ross yeah, permit are optimistic right now. Uh, to, to
1: wrap it all up, we we went from, you know, in two thousand eight, a declining, unregulated fishery with an open commercial fishery, to more or less say a very, very extremely limited commercial fishery, with restrictive har- harvest regulations, where the fishery is, valued as a catch and release only fish, a seasonal no fish closure. At their most important spawning site in the Lower Keys, so we went into this to figure out how can we stop the bleeding. Where are the points of pressure that fishermen are that fisheries are causing, and we we feel really good that we're able to do that. And if you talk, but yeah, if you talk to um, if you talk to the the guys in the Lower Keys right now, now the closure passed in twenty twenty one. No one was fishing in twenty twenty. And guess what? They're seeing a lot of two and three year old fish on the flats. So Yeah,
0: that's awesome.
1: You know, it, I mean, it's that's... hard to hard to make sense out of one year. You know, it's not very scientific of me, but it's optimistic, man. You know, and that's really cool to hear. And hopefully it's a sign for good stuff in the future.
0: Well, you know, you can't like <clears throat> so we you know, and I said I was about to jump out of my skin before, cause just to know like what we're going on with what's going on with stripers. So stripers are anadromous broadcast spawner. We know where they spawn. <clears throat> so they used to spawn in every river up and co- up, up, up and down the coast. But you know, they they dammed up all the fast moving rivers. You know, in the last hundred years, for either like grist mills, hydroelectric dams, whatever. And it just so happens that the Chesapeake Bay's rivers don't move very fast. You know, there's one one hydroelectric dam, the Conowingo, on the Susquehanna. And nothing else is really worth damming up. So. You know, we, we produce 60, 70% of the striped bass, the coastal Atlantic striped bass population. And it's not, it's not because the Chesapeake's a magical place. It's because our rivers move so slow they weren't worth stopping, you know, for energy or whatever. Um, so uh, we know where they spawn. And in the Chesapeake Bay in particular, our, in the Maryland portion, the spawning rivers are closed to targeting until June 1, okay? June one, like if I live on a spawning river, I cannot fish for striped bass, but in in that river, but in the main stem of the bay, where they aggregate, right where where they stage to spawn is perfectly fine. I can go out and kill them. Now here's the funny thing. they don't really eat when they spawn. So closing the river down, when they shoot up there to spawn is about as good as a screen door on a submarine because they don't eat. And it just, you know, the females are in and out super quick, couple tide cycles. They don't like to be here. The males are the ones that'll sit basically in those staging areas and wait for another wave to female females to come in. They'll all shoot up the river, go to the spawning areas, broadcast, spawn. Females are gone. Poof. And they wait for the males to go back to the staging area, wait for that next wave but it's perfectly fine to kill a big one in the main stem of the bay, but can't go in the spawning areas. You can't even fish. Can't even target them. Can't even catch and release. It makes no sense. Nothing about striped bass management makes sense. Um, You know, I, I mean, I go on and on forever, but, you know, the scariest thing is, Ross, is that we have the science by and large. I mean, we know how they behave. It's probably one of the most studied fish in the world, um, you know. And they're they're pretty doggone resilient. Like I said before, like you know, they shoot, man. They they live in freshwater reservoirs. We we tra- we bust them, trained them out to California. We've done everything in the world with these things, and, and I mean, they are resilient fish. But for some reason, you know, we can't we can't help but knock the knock the population down. Every time we got something good, we gotta wreck it. Um and it doesn't make a it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And I think the one benefit, you know, that I was talking with somebody this morning, um, an advocate, and he's actually a writer, he's a well known guy. I'm not gonna say who I'm not gonna say his name on the podcast, but if I said it, you might know him in the striped ass world. And uh and he's like, Man, I don't understand it. He's like, I don't you know, I don't I don't look at I don't see how people look at striped ass this way, like my gosh, you know, look at how people treat tarpon and bonefish and, and permit. And I kind of stopped him in his tracks. and I'm like, man, I'm doing a podcast later today. And I don't think, I don't think you, what your view of how people treat them is how they're really treated. I'm like, man, you know, do you, don't you remember the flotilla in Boca Grand Pass? They tried to stop that tournament where they're not even catching the fish. They're just snagging them. And half of them are getting eaten by giant hammerheads. I said, you know, they used to use bonefish for trolling baits offshore because they were so shiny. They'd rig them up like ballyhoo. I said, you know, look at what just happened with Permit. And I kind of gave him this five-minute download, and he's like, holy shit, we're all fighting the same fight, aren't we? And I said, yeah, we are. They're just a little bit ahead of us. You know, They're they're just this, you know, couple feet down the road further than us but it's that public perception right like when you're in the weeds on it and you kind of know everything about it and all the players and all the angles uh versus on the outside looking in you know y'all may look up at stripers and see pictures of guys with big stripers and and you know oh man stripers are doing fine and then you talk to somebody who's like you know our whole culture is based on them and we're like oh no man they're in the shitter Like they're on, they got pushed off the cliff, there, and they're tumbling right now, and we're trying to save them. Um, and I think it's just, you know, I think it's so interesting, and that's what that's why I love these conversations, because we're really not that far away, uh, from being in the same place. Um, we're struggling to make a difference, you know, fighting the good fight, and um, and and hoping, hoping beyond hope that we leave something better for the next generation. You know, I don't want to be the last generation that remembers, you know, a mile thick of stripers with 5,000 gannets and every fish was over 20 pounds. And you could, I mean, you could have put a piece of Christmas tinsel on a hook and caught one and just, you know, boil and fish and like straight out of National Geographic. And I tell younger people this and they look at me like I'm crazy and they'll fish, they'll fish three nights to catch a 30 inch fish. And you're like, man. I used to shake 27 inch fish off my line with a barbless hook, and we call them rats and curse at them, and be like, "Oh man, why do you eat that fly?" You know what I mean? Like it was, it was like, it wasn't. And now people stop and take pictures of them, hold them out real far, and be like, "What did I?" And you're like, "It's not." I don't, I don't look down on those people by any stretch of the imagination. As a matter of fact, I'd like to elevate them. I feel sorry for them because they never saw what it what it was, and and they don't understand what it could be. And it's that shifting baseline. And like, if you let it go for too long, the only thing that people remember is those five shots at permit, right? Instead of the 20 shots, maybe that they used to get 30 years ago, nobody will be left that remembers that. And it'll just be hearsay. Right? But it was real once. And like, man, my son's 12 years old. I would love it. I would love to see him boat up to like a thirty-pound striper on the front of the skiff. Man, I would. I. I'd probably. I don't even know what I'd do. I don't even know if I'd ever fish again. That would be the pinnacle of my life. It ain't gonna happen. Not where I live. Not where I live. Uh, shoot, twenty years ago, I could have. I could have done that with him. Uh, Thirty days out of the year, I could have given him a decent shot of that happening. Um, and these days you go all year you're not gonna see it i mean you can you can do it you know you understand the game ross like you can still do it you can go out and you can go to a very very specific spot that everyone knows about and and you know drop something on their head and drift over it 50 times and one time it's gonna eat it that's not but that's not what fishing is man that's not that's not what i remember it to be um you know i think what we're both looking for or like kind of well-managed, abundant fish populations. Everyone wants to throw all these problems. Oh, it's this problem. It's that problem. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's climate change. It's lack of forage. It's all of this stuff. And what I come back to all the time with that is if you want the best insurance policy in the world, for all the other problems, it's shark depredation. If you want the, If you want the best insurance policy in the world for all of those issues, have a lot of fish in the water. That's it. To me, that's the key. Have a lot of the damn fish in the water and they will find a way. But the problem is when it's death by a thousand cuts, when you have all that other stuff going on and the population's down, that's where you really get into big problems. And that's, you know, that's kind of where we're headed with Stripers. I mean, I'm happy to hear that Permit have turned a corner, you know, and then thanks to BTT for all the hard work and the science and being able to back up, you know, Everything that you're saying right now with a lot of years of of real, real good work. And, and I think that's how these days, that's how you get from A to B. It's not who screams the loudest, right? They can certainly muck things up, those people who scream the loudest for a while. But if you if you stay consistent, you can wear them down and you can win something, you know? And permit are a special fish and it's a special culture and it, it needs to be preserved. So, I mean, I'm thrilled to hear that y'all turned a corner with them thrilled um thrilled beyond words what are the next steps like how are y'all gonna i know you're not just gonna walk away from it now is there is there maintenance behind this you know ongoing research to to see like you said you know one two years that's not a baseline you know seeing the small permit that may be good but i I guess y'all are continuing this stuff over the long haul to, to to really see the results of this tony yeah that's a great point and i I, I wanted to follow up too that when we have united
1: fronts, even though your your contingency may not fish for permit every day, the fact that they're advocating for causes, the fact that they're making the culture of recreational fishing that of conservation uh, is awesome. That's when the nation transforms into that. That's that's a very powerful thing for everybody, whether it's Florida, Virginia, you know, Maine, California. That's great, and I appreciate what you're doing. And yeah, it's a bummer that that striped bass are just plagued with so many so many cuts and so many different management zones. That's just that's very that's very tough. Uh, For permit, yeah. So we got this this uh, western dry rocks closure put in place through science. FWC, they're taking it. our, Our state agency is taking it extremely seriously. This is the first kind of closure of. It's kind. Uh, every other closure that usually happens is 100 miles away from the nearest dock. Uh, re- usually, often, more or less, regulates commercial fishing, not recreational fishing. And the Western Dry Rocks closure is more geared. It's close by, culturally important. You talk to people in Key West, and they say, oh, my dad, I caught my first mutton snapper on the spawn with my dad in the 1950s. So this is like a historic spot and yeah in the 50s fishing it was probably cool you know when it was you and your five buddies you know but now when there's 50 boats anchor up there every time something's spawning that's that's not sustainable so long story short FWC is really more treating this as a trial closure at this point where they're going to review the status of the the fish stocks there on a 3-year and a 5-year and a 7-year basis and if performance metrics aren't shown the more fish at the aggregation they're getting bigger responding more vigorously, if all that's not shown, which is expected to do, then they're going to reopen it. So, what we're doing now, we've launched a study to do the necessary monitoring work to determine is it working? Is it not? If it's not performing as expected, why isn't it? Is it an enforcement issue? Is, it, uh, is there something else going on at the boundaries of that zone not quite right? And, and do all that due diligence to ensure that this zone we work so hard for. Main, you know, is working and is doing what it expects it to do, and that we can demonstrate that it does work. We put our money where our mouth is. That we push so hard for this, and we need to show that it. That it's, we need to evaluate it, and we need to make sure that it's it's doing something. So that's where we're at. Where we're, we're uh, monitoring the status of the permit aggregation there and a few other fish sites up the keys that we know are are, are flats aggregations, not to the extent that Western is, but are also you know, they hold flats fish so evaluate those uh in comparison to western dry rocks to
0: see how how it changes over time but no that's fascinating and and, you know that's that's scientific integrity when you don't just walk away when you get the closure but you do you do follow up to to provide that evidence that it's either working or not working because i mean let's face it if it's not working I'm sure y'all, y'all won't go crazy if it's not closed. Right. I mean, that's not doing that's it the whole, open it back up and shit. Yeah. 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 I mean, what the heck? Yeah. So um, it's,
1: it's, it's a cool project and the scientists are already seeing some pretty fascinating stuff looking at the using cool sonars to count the fish and see how the aggregation swims. And I, it's too early to say anything, but they, they, they're sounding pretty optimistic that, you're already seeing some pretty pretty interesting benefits um
0: i yeah. you know uh, ross i'm not I, I was i was teasing a little bit before but i'm not i'm not you know not everyone not everyone can be a, a a flats fly fisherman for permit and you know i think it's great that um i think it's great that you know people consider it a bucket list fish and 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 go out and try to catch one but you know man there's also a part of all this that is responsible being a responsible sportsman and like you know even if you got a little bonefish on and a and a lemon shark goes after it i mean the first thing you do is lower your fly rod and bust that leader and give him a chance yeah. you know you don't you don't continue the fight um <clears throat> you know as I, I hunt i used to hunt a lot more than i do now but i still hunt and one of the differences you know i think between hunting and fishing is you know when you when i pull that trigger or i release that that knock my my decision is made you know unless i miss that thing's dead and i've i have chosen to harvest it and you know when you're fishing i think what i've found is like You know, a lot of times, even, I mean, even if I, even I just take my kid to one of the ponds around here and we're, we're catching crappie and I mean, I grew up eating crappie crappie, right? 10 zillion of, and then I, you know, I catch a nice one and and be like, ah, you know, let's let's go home, have some fried crappie. And then I'll look at it and I'm like, I I don't want to clean this thing. I'm tired. You know, I want to go home and take a shower and, and probably work some more. Like, I don't, you know, I don't want to get that whole pro And then, so like that, as I'm, as I'm holding that fish, that decision is made in my hands. And more often than not, I let him, I let him go to swim another day, if, you know, for my own personal reasons. And I, I just think that if you're fishing and you're in an area where you know you can hurt the fish, maybe the water quality is bad. Maybe a shark's going to eat it. Maybe the conditions, you know, like, let's say, for example, for a snook, maybe the water's too cold. And and you shouldn't be fishing for them, right? It's it's going to hurt them if if you mess around with them. I think it's I think it's really important that you know BTT is doing this kind of work because it educates anglers because some anglers honestly don't know and they don't understand and and educating them and I found like especially the younger ones, those are the ones that you can reach and those are the ones that you can train, and then you it's a generational transformation you're teaching them, they'll teach the next generation. And, um, and I think, you know, I think that's how, after doing this for a really long time, I'm pretty sure that's how we're going to win the fight. Uh, It's not convincing the 60 year olds not to fill the cooler. You're never going to do that. I tried a lot of my life to do that. And, and it doesn't work. They're kind of sat in their ways. But what I'd much rather do is to find a young, you know, uh, up and coming, Angler who's really, you know, just wants to learn and and wants to wants to be a better fisherman and and all of these things. And I think if you can guide them in the right direction, you know, that's none of this stuff. You know, I, t- I told I told all the young people this. There's no there's no end zone dance. There's no parade. Fireworks don't go off when we win something. You win something and you wake up in the morning and you have more shit to deal with. Different kind of stuff. And that's kind of what fisheries work is. There's no like big rah-rah thing. But if we want to win in the end, that's how it's going to be done. That's how it's going to be done. It's it's getting using social media and other things to get the information to younger people, getting it something that where they can understand it, and and training them from the ground up and also helping them to be better fishermen and more conservation-minded, more responsible to the resource. Because like I always I always get this into a podcasts like if if you really love this stuff and you don't want to fight for it i don't even know who you are i don't i don't even everything i love i fight for maybe that's just me but like if you if you really love the outdoors and you're not willing to fight for it i don't know if we're going to be on the same team uh and i think the younger generation gets that maybe they were taught more science in grade school maybe maybe you know environment environmental studies was more part of the curriculum i i don't know I didn't i I finished school a long time ago um but they they're more prone to you know search for that knowledge and anyway, I think that that's another aspect of this. It's not just saving one little lump of land it's taking the body of work. And then that body of work becomes our best available science until it's, you know, proven false or something changes or whatever. But this is what we know now and getting that into the hands of people so they understand it and they can make the best decisions while they're out there. Because I'll tell you, man, if you talk to you talk to a lot of these kids who are under 30. And if you said, hey, man, if you fish there, eight out of the 10 fish, you're going to catch again and get eaten by sharks. But if you fish over there, maybe it's like one out of 50. Yeah, i bet you a lot of those younger kids will be like I'm, I'm a fish over there yeah it's interesting it's really you know for me for like a long-term view i see that and um and it's a real service that groups like btt are doing by advancing the science because we're giving those future sportsmen the tools that they need to make the right decisions because we make a lot of decisions on the water you know whether it's to keep that crappie I don't want to get I don't want to get all gummed up cleaning it, cleaning it, or if it's to fish over a certain spot that you know may have a four hundred pound bull shark sitting on it, and and who's making that decision, and and where are those teachable moments for maybe somebody that you see making the wrong decision, so that's another that's a that's a whole other podcast, but I think it's a it's a spinoff of the work that y'all are doing, long term, that's how you win the fight. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool stuff. And that's why I like working with BTT so much, because um, it's it's that long term view of winning the fight. So you know, sure. Ross, we we've been on here a while. Is there anything you left out? Anything that you want to add? Any kind of thoughts? Any any is there any information? Because you know, we get our we get our listeners all excited, and they hear this kind of stuff and they want to learn more, or they want to be able to follow it. So you know, plug the stuff maybe that's coming up. Um, so they can kind of educate themselves, and if we're going down to visit, visit Florida, they'll treat your permit the right way. Um, you know, let us know what you're going to be up to, man.
1: I appreciate that, Tony. I, I yeah, I would say as a, a parting message, we 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 have a video coming up called "The Pathway to Permit" that summarizes this this long term approach that took us from this unregulated fishery to now a well protected fishery in the Keys. It's a ten minute video should be coming up soon. Check that out for sure. If you're really interested in this, that this concert talk about tags.
0: I never knew 10 bit videos could be so expensive. Jeez. We paid for some of them, man. Holy mother of God. Maybe that's, a, that's another profession, Ross, that I should have gone into. <laughs> Jesus <laughs> Christ. I, you do. I don't, I, I was like, man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take my my smartphone out here and, and calculate it to what I'm paying for this crap per second because it's shocking. So like, y'all, if this is a 10 minute video, watch every second of it, because it probably costs an arm and a leg for BTT to produce it. Because I've been looking at some of those prices these days. So it's called the path to permit, y'all are gonna be putting out a video shortly. And if people want to learn more about this, of course, they can go to BTT's website um, and kind of dive into it from there and look at all the work y'all are done, correct?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And a big thanks to Costa Del Mar, I forgot to mention that they are a partner from the beginning on this project they funded it since we first proposed it to them back million years ago they helped pay for the video and much of the education and outreach so without corporate sponsors like costa a lot of the stuff that we do isn't
0: possible boy they walk the walk don't they ross They do i love them
1: no i mean i'm serious like
0: they they help they help us out no i saw i I had somebody wearing non-costa glasses and i watched their eyes melt out of their head like they, like, they looked at a nuclear blast, man. It was unbelievable. So, I mean, it's just a safety issue, too, to wear Kostas. Because, like, almost any other brand, I've, I've seen people just collapse and just have holes in their head where their eyes were being out on the water all day. And that doesn't happen with Kostas. But, you know, seriously, though, like, you know, people always tell me, uh, ask me, like, you know, oh, you know, who really cares and all that kind of. And I'm like, man, <laughs> I got a short list of brands that walk the walk. You know, that really believe in this stuff and around every corner there and and Costa, (laughs) Costa's at the top of that. Boy, I mean, you want to talk about putting your money where your mouth is. They sell an awful lot of sunglasses and they give an awful lot back to the community. And like, uh, you know, uh, I'll never I'm I'm a pretty loyal guy to a fault. Man, you you'll never see me in, in anything but Costas and you'll never see me recommending anything but Costas because I don't I don't know of any other company that puts more on the line for conservation. So I'm I'm glad that they're helping y'all out. I've had nothing but awesome experiences with them. Uh and I wish a lot of other companies looked at their business plan and the way that they ran things, because boy, would life be a lot easier if there were ten more Costas out there, wouldn't it?
1: If there were ten about more. It, right? uh, how much more could we get done? Like it's, yeah,
0: yeah that I mean, yeah, we'd be ten years ahead of where we are now. So yeah. every, every organization, and, yeah. and big banks man, around, and maybe we can- huge, huge. Um, so you know, BTTs welcome on here every time, man. Reach out, um, reach out when anything happens that y'all need to get the word out on tarpon, bonefish, permit. Um, we love you guys. Uh fight the good fight never give up never surrender and uh and you know i just look forward to the future and i know there's going to be a bunch of things that uh american saltwater guys association and btt can Lockhorns work on and uh and maybe change some stuff for the better so thank you for thank you for spending your time with us ross we all appreciate it heck yeah tony thank you
1: so much